Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. This is part two of my interview with Steve Oney, author of And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan, and The Lynching of Leo Frank. Please listen to part one if you have not done so yet. It will make the information to come much clearer. And, by the way, this episode contains adult themes and listener discretion is advised. We will pick up where we left off in our chat. So how long did it take the jury to deliberate, and what was the verdict? Uh, The verdict was guilty. The jury only deliberated a couple of hours. They went in. They came out uh, later that same afternoon, and the city was very overwrought by this point. There had been many demonstrations at the trial. There were huge crowds outside the courthouse. There was a lot of... um, anger and anxiety and um, acting out. So the prosecution and the defense agreed prior to the delivery of the verdict that Leo Frank would not be present in the courtroom because both sides feared that if Frank was acquitted, he would be immediately lynched. So Frank was not in the courtroom. The jury came back The judge asked the foreman for the verdict. He said guilty. And um, at that moment, Atlanta just erupted in a huge celebration. Uh, Dorsey was carried by the crowd out of the courtroom. His feet never touched the ground. Uh, They took him out to the sidewalk, put him in his car. All the skyscrapers in downtown Atlanta, the windows went up and people were throwing confetti onto the street and waving handkerchiefs and cloth out the windows. And, you know, for the entirety of that evening, the city uh, had a celebration. Uh, They they had convicted uh, this Jewish industrialist. They had found justice and they had done so largely believing a black man's testimony. So it was a strange and volatile and really disturbing day and, you know, terrifying to Atlanta's Jews because, and and I should also mention uh, when you ask what was the other um, element that the defense used in their closing argument, Reuben Arnold, the sophisticated uh, urbane defense lawyer, introduced the idea that anti-Semitism was part of this, that the police, the prosecutors, everyone had seized on Frank's Jewishness from the outset. Even if they hadn't said it, there was an otherness to Leo Frank. He was, to use a phrase I used earlier, a stranger in a strange land. He was an outcast in the city. And Reuben Arnold said, you know, look up on this, if you will. This poor young man, this Jew, this stranger in our city has been accused of this terrible crime for no other reason than his Jewishness. And at the trial, Hugh Dorsey had, in his argument, made some anti-Semitic remarks. There was, there was a, 
at least a tacit anti-Semitism through this and some overt anti-Semitism, but it was the defense that introduced the notion of anti-Semitism most directly in Reuben Arnold's closing argument. So, you know, you, you left the, the lines which were already clear on Confederate Memorial Day when you had a Jewish industrialist and a poor working girl and uh, this clash of wealth and privilege and uh, servitude and labor. By the end of the trial, those lines were even more stark and the hostilities on either side more volatile. So how long did the appeals process play out for Leo Frank? The appeals process went on for two years, so it was complicated. And the Frank defense team appealed this all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, which meant that it stopped at every state court before getting up to a federal case. And simultaneously, the case became appealed in the popular consciousness. The rabbi of Atlanta's main reform synagogue, uh, the temple, uh, David Marks, got on a train a few days after Frank's conviction and went to New York and sought out some of the most powerful Jews in America, uh, both the legal establishment, Louis Marshall, who was a constitutional lawyer in New York, and Adolf Ox, the owner and publisher of the New York Times, also Jewish. And ultimately, Marx made this appeal to these powerful Jewish men and several others that this was a an anti-Semitic persecution, that Leo Frank had never really received a fair trial, that the cards had been stacked against him all along. And initially, Northern Jews were not all that receptive to Marx's argument, but as the legal proceedings proceeded, um, Adolf Ox of the New York Times and Louis Marshall, the American Jewish Committee lawyer, decided that Marx was right, and they took up the cudgels for this, they found, wrongly convicted Jewish industrialist, uh, prosecuted and convicted and persecuted because of his faith, and they turned the crime into one of the greatest cause celebs of the 20th century, with the New York Times doing something it had never done, which was getting involved in advocacy journalism. It wasn't just the New York Times editorial page that championed Leo Frank. The news departments and the feature stories were full of stories favorable to Leo Frank, and the the case became on the, it was on the front page of every newspaper in America for, for a year and a half. So one of the twists, surprises in this case, involved Conley's attorney, William Smith. He began analyzing on his own Conley's speech and writing patterns, right? Right. This guy, William Smith, was an unusual, unusually independent person um, and... He had all along thought there were some strange inconsistencies in Conley's behavior, and he had noted them but looked past them. Conley was his client, and once Conley was convicted as an accessory after the fact, and he served one year in jail for that, Smith, having studied double jeopardy laws, felt that he was free to pursue an independent investigation of the case. Not every lawyer agreed with Smith. Many believed that Smith betrayed his client, but Smith didn't see it that way. And Smith got interested in Hugh Dorsey's portrait of Conley and Dorsey's closing argument as being illiterate, as always using the word done instead of did. And Smith compiled every bit of Conley's written and oral utterances that he could find, whether it was in letters or transcripts. And he found that uh, Conley used correct English pretty consistently. Conley never used done when he should have used did. He, he, spoke, he spoke well. And Smith also discovered that the murder notes bore the linguistic fingerprint, fingerprint excuse me, of Jim Conley, that Jim Conley was very fond of compound adjectives. He couldn't 
say things just straight. He would never say the tall man. He would say the long, tall black man. So he would have a mashup of adjectives in front of almost every noun. And that was consistent in his testimony, consistent in letters he wrote to people. And that was consistent in the murder notes. It was a long, tall black man. Um, And Smith determined, he judged that those murder notes had nothing to do with Leo Frank. They were the intellectual property of Jim Conley. Jim Conley had composed the notes. He had not just transcribed them at Leo Frank's dictation. He had composed them, and he had composed them to get him him, him off from murder, not Leo Frank, and that the long, tall black man that Conley pointed suspicion at in the note, not only was that entirely different uh, than Jim, who was a short, coffee-colored black man, but there was a long, tall black guy who worked in the basement of the factory, and Jim Conley was trying to make him uh, the fall guy. So how did Governor John Slayton become so personally involved, invested in this case? So this case turns into a tremendous cause celeb. The New York Times, documentary filmmakers, the newsreel companies, even the Hearst newspaper chain, which despite its role in ginning up the atmosphere that led to Leo Frank's conviction, William Randolph Hearst himself ultimately believed Leo Frank was innocent and he marshaled the resources of his Atlanta paper to try to exonerate Frank. All of this is going on as Frank is losing one decision after another in the courts of appeals. And when the U.S. Supreme Court turns down Frank's last appeal, which is based on a 14th Amendment case um, that Frank was denied habeas corpus because he was not allowed to be in the courtroom when the uh, verdict was returned, then that in itself was proof that the trial had been prejudiced and uh, that violence or the threat of violence had permeated the courtroom. So when the Supreme Court turns down the argument on that ground, the case first went to the Pardon and Parole Board, the Prison Commission it was then called in Georgia, and then it went to Governor John Slayton and uh, Frank sought executive clemency from the governor. And the governor was a sophisticated guy The governor had a conflict of interest. Luther Rosser, Frank's lead attorney, was the governor's law partner. But the state bar in Georgia was very small in 1913. There were conflicts of interest among everyone. Slayton did an independent study of the case, and he ascertained that Leo Frank was innocent. And his study turned on William Smith's study of the murder notes, and it also turned on something called the shit in the shaft. Um, Yeah, I I would love it if you could tell us about this evidence that Governor Slayton was so interested in. All right. One of the strangest and most vital pieces of evidence in the Leo Frank case was malodorous and wonderfully named the shit in the shaft. Now, at the trial of Leo Frank, Jim Conley, the key witness just as a throwaway remark, admitted that he defecated in the base of the factory elevator shaft on the morning of Mary Fagan's murder, but a couple of hours before she died. Then Conley gave his version of the story he'd been telling since he provided the police with various affidavits, which was that Frank had murdered Mary Fagan on the second floor of the factory And then he had recruited Conley to help him transport the body using the elevator to the basement, which was where later in the day Conley put the strange murder notes beside it. Well, when the police arrived the next day, when the detectives came and discovered Mary Fagan's body down in the basement, they took the elevator into the basement and they mashed a mound of fresh feces when the elevator hit the bottom of the shaft. So the elevator had not been used the previous day. Conley had defecated in the bottom of that shaft, but he had got Mary Fagan's body to the basement some other way, most likely down a little cubbyhole with a ladder. He had carried it physically. He hadn't used the elevator. 
and when the police got there and mashed this mound of feces, there was just a horrific smell. And that smell was trying to tell them something, but they couldn't understand what it was. Now, it may seem obvious from this remove that they should have immediately got it. They should have immediately known that uh, the elevator was not used the previous day. But all this evidence came out piece by piece over a long period of months, uh, really years. So by the time Frank's life was hanging in the balance two years after the murder, Governor Slayton and Frank's lawyers got interested in the shit in the shaft. And Governor Slayton, during his executive clemency hearings, went to the pencil factory and ran the elevator up and down and determined to his satisfaction that the elevator touched the bottom of the shaft every time, hence giving the lie to Conley's testimony, vital testimony, about how Mary Fagan's body had got to the basement. Now, there were dissenters who disagreed with Slayton's statement. Uh, they said the elevator did not touch the bottom of the shaft every time, but Slayton had done his due diligence. He'd done this experimentation, and he was convinced to his satisfaction that, it, that the elevator did touch the bottom of the shaft. And that gave the lie to Connolly's entire story of how the body was just uh, moved to the basement and why it was there after the murder had occurred two floors above in the pencil factory metal shop. So it was a vital piece of evidence, and Slayton based his commutation in part on it. So at the 11th hour, Governor Slayton commuted Frank's death sentence to life imprisonment. And there is, in retrospect, been a lot of debate about why he didn't just give him a full-out pardon. But Leo Frank's lawyers did not seek a pardon. They didn't seek a pardon because the case had become so volatile that they were convinced that Frank would be killed immediately if he was pardoned. And the reason the case had become so volatile, a character we haven't spoken of, is Tom Watson. Tom Watson, known as the Agrarian Rebel, was a former congressman from Georgia and the publisher of a weekly newspaper called The Jeffersonian. And The Jeffersonian, once this case got hot and heavy, and once The New York Times started editorializing in Frank's behalf every day, The Jeffersonian took it upon itself not only to rebut The New York Times editorials, but to present all the evidence against Leo Frank. And they did this forcefully, and they did it with a lot of anti-Semitic verbiage. And there was, you know, they wouldn't even use Frank's name half the time in their editorials. They would speak of the lecherous Jew. And th that became, you know, pretty much the, their standard synonym for Leo Frank. Anyway, a, a steady diet of this kind of stuff in the Jeffersonian led Atlanta and all of Georgia to really be on edge. The Jeffersonian was a small weekly paper when this started, and it had nearly quadrupled in circulation by the time this case ended. So Slayton uh, and Frank's lawyers felt that a full pardon was out of the question, and Slayton granted Frank executive clemency, and Frank was transferred from the Fulton County Jail in downtown Atlanta, where he'd been held since shortly after Mary Fagan's murder, he was transferred in the dead of night. Things were so up in the air and up in arms. People were so up in arms. He was transferred to the state prison, which was in Milledgeville, Georgia, down in the heart of Georgia near Macon. And the next morning after Slayton uh, delivered his executive clemency ruling, uh, Frank found himself in the state prison in Milledgeville. What, what efforts were made to protect Frank? You know, to lynch someone, to abduct someone from a state prison was a very difficult thing. There were 22 lynchings in Georgia in 1915, the year Frank was lynched, and most of them occurred spontaneously within hours after a crime uh, for which a black man was accused had occurred. Now, Frank was not only a white guy. He had the entirety of the national press in his corner, and he was in a state prison with guard towers and guards and guns, and getting him out of there was going to be a task of considerable complexity and would require more than just brute muscle and force. So Frank goes down to the state prison. The initial protection for him is pretty good down there. 
But no sooner had Frank been removed from Atlanta than the atmosphere there deteriorated horribly. The morning Frank's sentence was commuted uh, just as he was arriving in Milledgeville, Atlanta was overrun by thousands of protesters. It was a little like the January 6th demonstration at the United States Capitol. Thousands of people were milling around downtown Atlanta. A mob broke into the state capitol, and members of that mob burst into the Senate chamber and essentially took over the state Senate. Uh, protesters were delivering speeches from the well of the Senate, attacking Slayton and attacking Frank, and the city was out of control. And at the end of that day, members of the mob, some 5,000 of them, in fact, marched up Peachtree Street from downtown Atlanta to Governor Slayton's mansion in the Buckhead section of Atlanta, where they intended to either kill him or take him hostage. It was unclear, but because they were on foot and because it was a five-mile walk, Slayton had enough time to call out the National Guard, and they were met by the Guard, uh, which had thrown up a perimeter around the Governor's mansion, and the Guard drove this crowd back down the street, and Slayton lived uh, through the evening. But that was the general atmosphere in Atlanta, and the atmosphere was most poisonous and most um, volatile in the town of Marietta, which is a little further northwest of Atlanta, where Mary Fagan's family was from. And a group in Atlanta and Marietta decided within a couple of days of the commutation of the sentence that they were going to try to pull off this crime of great daring do and abduct Leo Frank from the state penitentiary and bring him back to Marietta and hang him there. They were going to abduct him from the state farm, as it was called, because it was a working farm that the convicts raised corn on and going to bring him back to uh, Marietta and lynch him at dawn. And Tom Watson, the agrarian rebel who I mentioned, he used his first edition of his Jeffersonian paper after the commutation to say that uh, the governor, by commuting the sentence, had prostituted the law and that uh, when the form of law had been so disregarded by a sitting executive, um, there was no longer any law and that the only law should be lynch law and that the provocation was so great. And Watson not only was a great propagandist, he was a lawyer himself. So he twisted around the words of this to make it seem as if lynching was a prescribed act. Lynching was the only uh, court that you could rely on when the courts themselves had been perverted as Leo Frank's wealthy Jewish supporters had perverted them. So Watson called on a lynching and called for a lynching and people in Marietta started to put together this plan of how to uh, get Leo Frank out of the state prison. A quick break now. We will return momentarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And back to the interview. They removed him from this prison with such ease. Do you think the planners of of this mob, of this lynching party, had arranged for help from the inside of the prison? Yes. um, I spent years when researching the book, trying to get to the bottom of the lynching, because even 85 years after the lynching, which was when I was finishing up the book, this was still an incredibly guarded secret in Georgia. No one would speak of it. Um, I had some sources. I knew uh, the children of some of the planners of the lynching uh, because I'd gone to the University of Georgia and had a, a sense of who these people were. So I was able to go to them and talk to them, uh, Georgian to Georgian. But um, in 1915, when this was being put together, the way they did it was they recruited a number of very skilled people in Marietta, uh, good with guns, good with electricity, automotive mechanics uh, who could service cars going down largely on unpaved roads to carry off the subduction. So That was going on on one hand, and on the other hand, a state legislator from this town of Marietta was the chairman of the prison subcommittee in the legislature, and he was putting pressure on the warden and the prison commission, and there had been a typhus outbreak at the prison the previous year, and several people had died, and there was a good deal of debate that, um, a good deal of evidence that the typhus outbreak had occurred because of... um, bad uh, cleanliness and sanitation at the prison that was the fault of the prison administration. So this legislator from Marietta, John Tucker Dorsey, was able essentially to say to the prison commission and the wardens, you let us in and let us get Leo Frank out of this prison, or we're going to stick you with the blame and an investigation into this typhus outbreak and your careers are going to be ruined. And not only that, they passed legislation in the state legislature with funding for a new wing to be built at the prison. And so money was going to start flowing from the state to the state prison for construction. And it wasn't an exact payoff, but uh, it was, you know, there would be grease, there would be uh, vigorish, everybody would get a little piece of this. So it was a carrot and stick by the planners of the lynching to uh, you let us in or we'll blame you for this out- typhus outbreak and you let us in and suddenly thousands of dollars are going to flow from the state coffers for new construction at the prison farm. So the prison farm was put into play by the planners of the lynching using their connections in the state capital and the state legislature. So in a sense, it was a state-sanctioned off-the-books crime, and they went down and got Leo Frank and got into the prison without firing a shot and knew exactly where Frank was. They pulled him out of the room he was in, threw him into the back of a car that already had a rope with a noose tied, and drove Frank in this caravan of five or six cars. The number is a little Uh, imprecise because one of the cars at least broke down during the trip. They took him on a, they took him on a ride. Uh, They took him on a circuitous ride 
way out into the country, way east of Atlanta. And when they got to Marietta, which is northwest of Atlanta, and Milledgeville is southeast of Atlanta, they were coming in from the north as if they were coming from the mountains of Georgia. So they, they had really plotted this course uh, using a lot of misdirection to throw off anyone who might be onto them. You know, and they did all sorts of stuff in advance. They cut the phone wires to the entire city. They drained the gas tanks of all the state vehicles at the prison farm so no one would be able to get pursuit. Um, they had visited some of the sheriffs on the route they were going to use to let them know that at you know, two in the morning, a caravan of eight cars was six cars, whatever it was, was going to barrel through their little town. And, um, they, they had set this thing carefully in motion. This was not a, you know, people think of lynch mobs and mobs being a result of spontaneous eruption, like fire caused by lightning. This was not a lynch mob. This was a lynch organization that had been well-planned and well-conceived. And the masterminds of it didn't even go on the trip. The masterminds were all up in Marietta waiting for news from their lieutenants that uh, Leo Frank had been abducted and ultimately news that uh, he had been lynched from a rope in a place called Fry's Gin, which is just outside of Marietta. There was a cotton gin there. And mysteriously enough, a table had already been set up beneath the limb of an oak tree and the table could be used as a base for a hanging. And the lynch party got to Fry's Gin a little after dawn on the morning of August 17, 1915, and put Leo Frank on the table and kicked it out, out from under him after they tied the noose around his neck, and he, he hanged there, hanged till he died by strangulation. And, and he hung there uh, for quite a while, lots of time for people to come and gawk. Yes, Frank hung from the limb of this oak, tree for a couple of hours. And as a consequence, there were lots of photographs taken, uh, lots of newsreel footage shot. Uh, thousands of people arrived at the lynch site. And that was actually quite good for the planners of the lynching because as people on the outside perceived it, oh, these were the lynch party members gathering around the body, gawking at the body. These people had nothing to do with the lynching who were shown in these photographs and newsreel footage. They were just rubberneckers who had appeared uh, when they heard that a lynching had occurred. So the lynch party quickly disbanded, and later that same day, they drove off to a fish camp in North Georgia in order to establish alibis, and they were long gone. And some of the planners of the lynching remained in Marietta and worked their connections in the press and in state government to put out false stories of what had happened that night. And even sophisticated newspapers like the New York Times, uh, the New York Tribune, um, they you know, took these false stories at their word. And so the, the real story of how Leo Frank was killed was never published and became a deeply held secret that no one talked about. And if you were to ask anyone about this, even up until the 1970s, when the last member of the lynch party died of old age, uh, you would have just been met by a blank stare. And had you asked about it in the 1930s or 40s, when these men were still in their middle age and capable of some violence, you would have been uh, brusquely escorted to the edge of town. Wow. So what happened with the Jewish community? in Atlanta after this? Uh, were they able to talk about it, um, address what happened, or were they kind of silenced by fear? The Jewish community was more than kind of silenced by fear. The Jewish community was devastated. And Atlanta had a big and powerful Jewish community at the time. And unlike the Jewish communities in northern cities, where there were a lot of Russian and Eastern European immigrants, the Atlanta Jewish community was largely German Jewish, and they had been there since the time of the Civil War. And many of the 
grandfathers had in fact fought for the Confederacy and they believed themselves to be assimilated and accepted. And the rabbi, David Marks, who I mentioned a while ago, he didn't even use Hebrew in service. He spoke in English, did not wear a skull cap. Uh, you know, he was very much the picture of a modern Jewish rabbi. And when Leo Frank was lynched and all this anti-Semitic venting occurred around the lynching and the Jeffersonian published these terrible things, and there was a terrible awakening among Atlanta Jews, and they felt, you know, we really are the other. We're not accepted here. We are in danger. And yet they were from there. So they essentially responded by going into a kind of denial. The Jewish community had a very intense meeting a couple of weeks after the lynching and members of the Jewish community in Atlanta debated, do we investigate this? Do we call for outside investigations? Do we, what do we do? And there was a vote at the end of the meeting and the majority voted to ignore it, that they were just going to have to live with this and go on because if they got into it, they would all be in danger and there might be a war. There might be more deaths. And it was uh, very, very dicey. And um, Adolf Ox, the publisher of the New York Times, um, essentially stopped covering the Leo Frank case within a day or two after the lynching because he felt that the New York Times, which operated on the rule of neither fear nor favor, may have gotten over-involved in this case and had done Frank some harm and had um, helped prime the backlash that took Frank's life. So there was a, a sense of um, the Jewish community was stunned and they were, and Lucille Frank, Frank's widow, uh, who went through all this before she turned 30. I mean, the depth of tragedy in this young woman's life is phenomenal. And she moved away for a couple of years. She had a cousin who had a uh, ready-to-wear shop in Memphis. And Lucille went to Memphis for a couple of years and worked at this shop. But she came back to Atlanta and worked at the glove counter of J.P. Allen, which was a very uh, dressy, haute couture even shop in downtown Atlanta. And Lucille uh, would be at the glove counter and the daughters and wives of members of the lynch party were her customers. And she didn't know that these women were related to the people who'd taken her husband's life. And they didn't know that their husbands and fathers had been involved in it. So it became something that no one could talk about. The Jews in Atlanta couldn't talk about it, and the people in Marietta who pulled this off, they couldn't talk about it either. It was, it was a, I hate the cliche elephant in a room, but it was, it was the elephant in the room in Atlanta's Jewish world until about, and, until the time I did this Esquire piece when this fellow Alonzo Mann, who had been Leo Frank's office boy, came forth and said, wait a second, I've got some evidence and I'm getting old and I want a hearing. And uh, at that point, two Atlanta lawyers sought a posthumous pardon for Leo Frank. And slowly, 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 Atlantans started talking about this in public again. So what was it like meeting Alonzo Mann? Again, he had been the factory's office boy. When I met him, he was a sweet old man. Uh, I interviewed him at a Veterans Administration hospital in Mountain View, Tennessee, which is up in the Smoky Mountains. And Lonnie, as he was largely called, was 85. He had congestive heart failure. He would not be alive much longer. But we sat uh, at his little room in the hospital, and he told me this entire story. And my Esquire article begins with this old feeble man resurrecting interest in this forgotten murder case. And because he was, you know, according to Lonnie, he arrived at the pencil factory and worked on the morning that Mary Fagan was killed. And then he left around noon and he got halfway down the street and realized he'd forgotten something. So he rushed back into the factory lobby 
And there he saw Jim Conley holding Mary Fagan's body in the factory lobby. And according to Lonnie, Conley said, if you tell anyone about this, I'll kill you. And Lonnie was only 14 years old. He was shy. He had a stutter. He was not super confident. And he went home to his parents and his parents essentially said, keep your mouth shut. So Lonnie lives his life and periodically he told people about what he had been told by Conley that morning at the pencil factory and what he'd seen, but no one really took him seriously. He worked uh, at a small restaurant in Atlanta, but as he got older, he met a reporter at the Nashville, Tennessean named Jerry Thompson, and Jerry uh, took what Lonnie had to say seriously and the Tennessean was edited at that time by a very smart guy named John Siegenthaler. And John said to Lonnie, or said to Jerry, run with the story. And so Jerry first published Lonnie's late in life confession in the Tennessean. And when I saw the newspaper story, I thought, wow, there's a much bigger story here. And I can go back and write a uh, magazine article based on what Lonnie had to say. And then after my article came out, um, I went on uh, to this much deeper exploration of the case. And in the end, Lonnie does not play a big part in my book because ultimately, when Lonnie said he saw Jim Connolly in the lobby with Mary Fagan's body, that just corroborated what Governor Slayton already knew because of the shit in the shaft, which was that the elevator was not used that day, that uh, Jim Conley had waylaid the girl in the lobby and that the attack had occurred there. It didn't occur up on the second fl floor. It occurred in the lobby. The elevator had nothing to do with it. Uh, and Alonzo Mann's late in life revelations just buttressed what uh, Slayton already believed to be the truth back in 1915 when he commuted the sentence. So what would explain the blood and hair found in the metal room on the second floor? A, and this was prosecutorial misconduct on Hugh Dorsey's part, Hugh Dorsey allowed the hair evidence to be used even though the state's own medical expert had already told him that the hair found on a lathe in the factory metal room was not Mary Fagan's hair. So Dorsey, in his desperation to win a conviction, was guilty of prosecutorial misconduct. He allowed false evidence, uh, or he allowed this physical evidence to be introduced in court, and the physical evidence uh, was flawed. The hair came from somebody else. It wasn't Mary Fagan's hair. It didn't match the hair sampled from Mary Fagan's body during the autopsy. The blood was never conclusively tested. And in fact, the doctors at the trial said there was so little blood, it could have come from a rodent or a cut finger. And this metal room was full of sharp equipment, full of uh, stuff. There were, there were accidents every day where someone bled profusely from a cut finger or cut hand. And the defense at the trial introduced a lot of evidence talking about factory accidents and where the first aid equipment was and how you cleaned it up. So there was some blood on the floor, but the state never proved it was Mary Fagan's blood. And you also got to remember the, the state of um, medical science was a little primitive then. Fingerprints had only just started to be uh, used as evidence at this time. And there, there was a the doctors in Atlanta were good. They were well-educated, but they were working, uh, the ones who investigated this were working at a real disadvantage because they didn't have the autopsy until nine days after death. So uh, the the samples they took from Mary Fagan had deteriorated. The only good evidence that I could tell they gathered from the body was the food that they extracted from her stomach did give them a pretty clear and precise understanding of digestion on that day, which, you know, you could make a smart determination of time of death based on that. And the hair they took did not match the hair found at the, what the state said was the crime scene. Beyond that, they were, 
you know, the autopsy report has disappeared. I don't know where it is. The um, I looked long and hard to try to find it. Uh, most of the state's evidence is now gone. So, you know, to to actually touch the documents that were used at trial is is pretty hard. I mean, I found bits and pieces of them at different archives around the country or in the homes of the children of some of the lawyers. So I was able to assemble a good deal of it, more than anyone else ever had. But if you're looking for a perfect chain of evidence, you can't find it in this case. What happened to Jim Conley after he was released from prison? Jim Conley served his one year, and then he went on a kind of crime spree. And the crime spree strangely enough, in the minds of white Atlantans, just confirmed their view that he was innocent, that he was too simple-minded to have concocted a story as complicated as the one that uh, he told in court. So he was arrested several times for beating his wife, for beating other women. He was ultimately arrested for armed robbery in Atlanta and served some serious prison time at Reedsville Prison in the 1930s. And then he just essentially disappeared. And um, someone I know in Atlanta has a lead on what happened to Jim Conley. And it may, within the next couple of years, come to light where he really ended up. But he never, he never confessed. He never you know, and I talked to a lot of people who knew him later in life, uh, who uh, I talked to a young man who later became a young black guy who later became a teacher in the Atlanta public schools who worked at a laundry where Jim Conley worked as an older guy. This guy worked there when he was young. So I was able to piece together bits of Jim's later life. But as to there's no death certificate for him as to the final disposition of Jim Conley. It, it ends uh, as a dead end. So for visitors who might be interested in exploring the locations central to this case, uh, what, if anything, still exists? Are, are there any buildings still standing? Um, are there plaques, memorials? Sadly, there's not much left of Leo Frank's world. The best place to go is Marietta, which is a beautiful little antebellum town, and really I love it. It's a gorgeous place, and if you go to the Marietta City Cemetery, which is in walking distance of downtown, you can see Mary Fagan's grave. You can see the plaque that the Sons of the Confederacy uh, put there to commemorate her, and the verbiage is quite poetic and profound and suggests how iconic she became as a vision of Southern womanhood, a, a vision cut short by tragedy. And in the same graveyard, you can see the more majestic stones of the powerful Mariettans who organized the lynching. So there's a sense as you walk through this graveyard of the little girl who was cut down too early in life, and then the powerful figures who ran Marietta in that day who misguidedly attempted to avenge her death by lynching Leo Frank. And when you walk around the square of Marietta, it's pretty much intact as it was uh, in 1915. And you can see some of the buildings where the lynch party members worked and congregated and discussed this in advance. Um, the old courthouse in Marietta sadly burned down, so you can't see that. Uh, the in Atlanta, there's really nothing left of Leo Frank's world. Downtown Atlanta on Forsyth Street, there's something called the Sam Nunn Federal Building. And um, that was the site of the pencil factory. So if you go stand and look at this kind of bleak, white uh, edifice, that's where 100 years ago, there was a factory that churned out hundreds of pencils and this crime started there. The Lynching took place just east of Marietta, and it's the exact ground is now bypassed by the um, 
four lanes, I guess it's six lanes of Interstate 75. So you can't even stand at the exact ground. But if you, you can drive on Fry's Gen Road, which goes right to the edge of I-75. And that's where Frank was lynched at Fry's Gen, this cotton gin. And the road that commemorates that property is still there. And there's a little two-story nondescript building that has a plaque commemorating Leo Frank there. The, you know, sadly, the prison where Frank was abducted was just torn down two years ago, two and a half years ago, in a really misguided decision by the county in um, Millersville, Georgia. So that was the last, to me, place where you could actually go where uh, a major event in this had occurred and walk the same ground that the principals had walked. Where are Lucille and Leo Frank buried? Leo Frank is buried at Cypress Hills Cemetery in Queens, and um, it's the Frank Stern plot, and Frank's grave uh, bears the Latin inscription Semper Edom, uh, which translates it is ever thus and suggests that anti-Semitism predates Leo Frank's death and postdates it as well. Lucille Frank uh, was sad story. Um, she died in the late 50s. Uh, she was cremated. She asked that her ashes be scattered in a public park. There was an ordinance against uh, scattering cremains in public parks in Atlanta at the time. So her family drove her ashes around in the trunk of their car and then they privately buried them in an unmarked plot near her parents' graves at Oakland Cemetery in downtown Atlanta. And the reason they privately buried them there, this was in the mid-60s that this took place, is that even then they were fearful that if they had a public funeral service for Lucille Frank, uh, that the anti-Semites and the hostility might all rear its head again. So they took this little box of cremains. Uh, two of her nephews did, drove out to the cemetery right before dawn and took garden tools and buried Lucille Frank's remains in an unmarked plot. So, you know, it was at the end of my book, I used that story, which one of the nephews who took part in the burial told me about, um, you know, just to suggest what we were talking about earlier, just the unending impact of the lynching on Atlanta's Jews, that even that was 60 years afterwards, uh, nearly, they, they couldn't have a public um, commemoration at a cemetery for fear of what might happen. You, you interviewed some of the descendants, right, uh, of the people who planned Leo Frank's lynching. Yes, I, I talked extensively to um, a number of descendants of the main planners of Frank's lynching, and um, that was interesting. The um, I, I made friends with an old gent, now sadly dead, named Bill Kenny. Bill was the associate editor of the Daily Newspaper in Marietta, and Bill's uncle had been in the lynch party, and Bill had, over the years, learned a great deal about it. Uh, Bill was born in the uh, 1920s, so his life was long after all this, but it became a fascination to Bill, and yet Bill never really wrote anything about it in the Marietta paper because the Marietta paper was owned by a family that had been among the planners of the lynching. So when I went to work on my book, uh, Bill and I became friends, and I would visit Bill every couple of months and write to him more often, talk to him on the phone as often as I could, trying to get him to guide me through the lynching story. And Bill didn't really give me much direct information, but he was cooperative in his own way and kept sending me to people to talk to. So it was through Bill that I met the descendants of some of the planners of the lynching. And luckily, one of these descendants, a guy named Herbert Clay, told me all about the involvement of his father, Herbert Eugene Clay Sr., and how he had helped plan the lynching. And um, it was a pretty difficult subject to talk to a son about, uh, but he was 
forthcoming. He was intellectually interested in it, uh, and his mom and dad had split up when he was very young, so he didn't really know his dad. His mom had raised him, so he got invested in my project of trying to learn about the lynching. He was just trying to learn about who his dad was, and our interests uh, dovetailed, so I spent a lot of time with Herbert Eugene Clay, Eugene Herbert Clay Jr., going back and reminiscing with old people in Marietta about his father and what the relationships were. And I would just sit and let these folks talk. And slowly, 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 I started to glean little bits of how it worked. And I was also doing the equivalent of a deep dig to the extent that you can. Uh, There were only a few hundred cars in Cobb County, which is Marietta's the seat of Cobb County, north of Atlanta. And I went back and got the Department of Transportation, the the driver's license records uh, from the Department of Transportation for that year. And, you know, was able to match the vehicles that belonged to people who made public statements against Leo Frank and who I suspected had been part of the organizing group uh, for the lynching and, and determine pretty assuredly which cars actually went down and who owned them. And uh, today that would be real needle in a haystack time. You couldn't prove anything through that kind of work. But there were so few cars then that you could start to establish what the control group was of people who had an interest in this lynching and were going to get something out of it. Um, And the people who planned the lynching were after all sorts of things, not just blind vengeance, although some were certainly after that, but some were after political gain. Uh, Some were, you know, the, the Democratic Party in Georgia was split over this case. And one of the guys who planned the lynching, a, a former Superior Court judge named Newt Morris, was trying to build political capital with people who opposed Leo Frank's wing of the Democratic Party. So, you know, you, you could start to piece together the motives and the actions of of the principles. And, you know, when my book came out, that actually made front page news in the South because this was a real portrait of a community that had come together to kill this guy and then had quietly lived with it for um, nearly a hundred years. And in a way, as paralyzed as Atlanta's Jewish community was, um, I mean, Atlanta's Jewish community was the victim, but they were silenced by it. But the victimizer was also silenced by it. I I cover a lot of cases on the show that were so sensational in their day, as this one certainly was, but then get muted or forgotten by history. But this case still lives on. People still have strong feelings about it. Why do you think that is? Most obviously, it's because this case touched a nerve about class and race and religion and sex. All were involved, and this case touched each of those parts. And in the aftermath, it led to the creation of two polarizing forces, a force of prejudice and a force of enlightenment. And they were embodied by the Anti-Defamation League, which was founded in 1913 and was really galvanized by the Frank lynching to look into anti-Semitism in America, and the 1915 resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan had been founded back in the 1860s when the South had no home rule as a kind of um, vigilante justice organization. But when home rule was restored to the South, And the northern troops that had been supervising the South uh, went back uh, north. The Klan disbanded. So from 1869 to 1915, there was no organized Ku Klux Klan. Leo Frank was lynched on August 17, 1915. And on Thanksgiving Eve of 1915, about 20 miles away from the lynch site, the Klan was resurrected at a cross burning atop Stone Mountain, a gigantic granite outcropping outside Atlanta that remains very controversial to this day because it's got a sculpture on its 
front face showing the Confederate generals, uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stuart and uh, Lee's horse, Traveler. So it's, it's a place where Southern, the South has not really been reconstructed at Stone Mountain. It remains defiant and obviously so. So for the Klan to have reconstituted itself atop this mountain and three members of the Leo Frank Lynch party were there at the cross burning. Um, what, what you have is, you know, real, not just symbolic uh, appearance of the difference between Jews and unreconstructed Southerners, but you have lasting uh, hostilities. And so the, the Frank case touched this nerve. Also, you know, the, world was changing very fast at the time of the Leo Frank case. The agrarian age was ending, the industrial age was starting, and the crime touched on these tensions as two shifts, or a major shift was occurring in the way life is lived. And that shift is very similar to the shift we're undergoing today, except we're now moving from the industrial age to the information age. But there's a splintering and an anxiety and... Um, there was a splintering and anxiety in 1915 when all this happened. Also, I think one of the reasons it's remembered um, is that we don't really know for sure who killed Mary Fagan. Now, I think Jim Conley, the chief witness against Leo Frank, was the murderer. But people make a case that he was innocent and that Leo Frank was the killer. So one of the reasons we remember certain cases is because of their ambiguity. I don't think we remember stories because of their clarity. We remember them because of their fuzziness. Uh, that's why we remember Jack the Ripper. It's, there, there are elements that don't add up. So there are elements of the Frank case that don't add up and people are continually looking back and trying to gain an understanding, but it's, it's difficult. So, so are you working on anything new currently? I am. I'm under contract to Simon & Schuster to write a narrative history of public radio. So I'm trying to do for NPR and public radio what David Halberstam did in his book um, about uh, the New York, not the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times and Time Magazine, or Gay Talese did in his book, The Kingdom of the Power, about the New York Times. I'm trying to erect this story of how public radio, how this telling of America's story by an institution that was an afterthought of LBJ's Great Society program, how that came to be as flourishing and powerful as it is. And I'm a big fan of uh, the historian David McCullough, and he writes about American institutions. And I was thinking, what's an American institution that is a huge part of our life? And we hear the voices of this institution day by day, but we don't know who they are or where it comes from or how it even works. And I thought, well, public radio is kind of like that. Uh, so I'm in the midst of writing a big book uh, tentatively titled American Air about uh, public radio in America. Oh, wow. So your book, I believe it came out in 2004, but it's uh, available, of, of course, in, in hardback, the book came out in 2003, and it, it came out in paperback in 2004, and I'm delighted to say it's still in print. And that's a incredible thing, because 18 years later, 19 years later, you can't always say that. Thank you for spending so much time with me here. Well, thank it's you for taking treat. so much time. I told you that I could I'd be like a broken jukebox. I, or not broken, a jukebox you can't turn off. I would just keep going. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Eric, thank you so much for your interest and your smart questions and your obvious, um, obviously astute study of the case. And uh, I look forward to, to listening. Again, my guest has been Steve Oney. His book is called And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. 
and have a safe tomorrow. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.